So I was taking a shower this morning, actually, uh, quite early in the morning, and I suddenly remembered um, a teaching line from my uh, our friend and colleague, Guy Armstrong, that we haven't said yet on this Metta retreat. It's one of my favorite lines, so I thought, oh, I'll have to figure out how to say that. So the way I figured it out is I'll say it first, and then everything else will fit. People have been asking throughout the day, you know, people have been reporting that, you know, that they've been actually working in the way that we've suggested that people work here, and they're actually feeling good. Their bodies are feeling good. Their minds are feeling good. They say, how does this work? And my friend Guy said, uh, in describing the metta mind, he said, the metta mind is like frozen orange juice. Everything that's extra is squeezed out, and only the sweetness is left. So I love that idea. And I think about oh, everything else is squeezed out. And actually what's squeezed out here, what's extra, are the stories of enmity and the stories of blame and stories of guilt and irritation and contention that make us at odds with everything else, that make us separate from the whole world. I want to talk about how this practice makes us not separate from the whole world, really connected to the whole world. There's a line in the Metta Sutta. I hope you have your Metta Sutta in front of you. So I really want to talk a little bit from the Metta Sutta. It's one of my favorite things. When I travel, um, I carry three pieces of literature with me. I carry a poem called Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda and a poem called uh, On Kindness by um, Naomi uh, Shihab Nye and I carry the Metta Sutta. I probably actually know most of them by heart, but those are the three pieces of literature that I travel to teach with. And then I figure everything else, I'll make it up on the spot, but I need to have those with me. Because I actually think that the Metta Sutta is the whole of the Dharma in one side of one page. So I want to talk about it I'll, 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 as part of tonight's talk. But I want to start with... Uh, one phrase in all of it that I think is the key phrase, uh, a key phrase, and particularly at this point in the practice, really to reiterate a key phrase. I think we should read it all together first, because I'm going to pick out two key phrases. Let's read together. Ready? This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, 
Those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. May none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. I'm going to tell you in a little bit why I think this is the whole of the Dharma. I want to start just for a minute with the one phrase, omitting none. Omitting none. And how hard that is. Maybe this whole entire practice is based around the accomplishment of the omitting none. For the most part, because we're amiable animals as human beings, we wish well. It's normal for human beings to wish well. In everybody's talk, in everybody's explanation, Heather and Donald and Mark, everybody's been saying metaphrases in ways that are normal talking phrases. These are normal things that human beings feel like saying to each other, good job, carry on, excellent, you're doing great, take heart. We are companionable, amiable animals. And then every once in a while we have problems. We say, okay, I'll wish well, but not that one. And Everybody, but not that one. You certainly aren't going to ask me to wish well to that one, especially those political people, not that one. The omitting none is where it's crucial to understand that the liberation of metta is the liberation of one's own heart from the constraints of feeling tight, from the constraints of enmity and ill will. So one of the metaphors that uh, has been on my mind about how we think about this practice and how through the week we keep adding people first, the benefactors and ourselves in the middle. It's like a circle, like an atom with orbits of a a nucleus and then orbits of atoms. Here I am in the center. Everybody's in the center of their universe. And then orbiting around them are the people they really love a lot. And then a little bit out, people they, they're okay, you know. People out here that... They recognize, and, but, you know, they're not so close with them, but they recognize them. Out here, like Neptune and Pluto, you know they're there, but you don't actually quite have a familiarity with them. And in between are a few maybe disagreeable uh, falling meteors or difficult falling space debris or things that might bump into us and cause us trouble. So, but here's this whole constellation of us in the middle and wishing well. And we're at a point where we'll soon begin to talk about the falling space debris and the 
people who fall into our lives in actuality or into our thoughts or into our minds or into our memories and cause us pain. But after that, we'll talk about all beings on all realms, all those people out there. And the hope and the vision I have is we might have such a heart. Uh, my friend Sharon Salzberg wrote a book called A Heart as Wide as the World that everybody could get into. So I brought a book that I, someone gave me at Christmas time. I, I thought it in the, in the, originally I'd read it to you. I've decided I'm not going to read you the whole book, but I'll tell you about it. <laughs> it's a little book. I could read it to you. It's called Every Person on the Planet. And it's by Bruce Eric Kaplan. You'll recognize if you can see that he's a cartoonist and he cartoons a lot for the New Yorker, so you probably will recognize his figures. Anyway, this is about Edmund and Rose, Rosemary who live in Brooklyn in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York, who decide to have a party for the holidays. And they're not very party people. They don't usually do this kind of thing. But they decide it would be the right thing to do. So even they don't really feel like it, they decide it would be the right thing to do. And as you'll hear me tell you about this, you'll know that this is about all of us. Why, we don't really feel like it. was the right thing to do? Okay, I'll do it. And then they start to make a guest list. And they say, well, these are the people we certainly have to invite so-and-so. And then we have to invite so-and-so. And once we invite so-and-so, we'll have to invite so-and-so because if they find out that we invited these other folks and we didn't invite them, then they'll be mad at us forever and ever. And then these people that we work with, they'll hear about it, so we have to invite them. And then we have to invite the cousins because the cousins will know that we're having a party. And the cousins, you know how cousins are. We don't like the cousins, but you have to invite the cousins and then we'll have to invite this one and that one. And they soon decide that they have to invite the whole entire planet. Mm-hmm. 8.3 billion people they have to invite to their party. So then it's about they making a guest list and they invite the whole entire planet. And then they start to worry, what if we forgot someone? And then they discover in the middle of the night that they forgot all of one entire continent and they had to go get more invitations to send it out. <laughs> and when the invitations are first printed and they pick them up and the invitations didn't come out as pretty as they thought they were when they went to the printer, but then, of course, nothing ever comes out as well as you think it will. And that's what the book is about. It's about how people live a life. They worry it won't be good, they won't come on time. We won't have enough, we won't have prepared enough. And then people come to the party, and lo and behold, they all come to the party. And many people offend many other people, and many people are insulted by other people, and many people are very pretentious, and the shy people coming, hoping against all hope that they won't be shy, but they are shy anyway. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the party unfolds. And the end, everybody is offending everyone. Everyone is feigning being interested in what everybody else is talking about, but they're actually not. So I'm not reading you the whole story, but at the very end, at the very end, you can see where it is, near the end of the book, uh, when um, actually uh, Rosemary has had a little too much to drink. She came, as had half the other people at the party, she came across Corinne Madison, whom she'd known in elementary school. Corinne had always been one of those quietly mean girls. Corinne made some condescending remarks about Rosemary's home, and Rosemary lost all control, telling Corinne what a terrible person she was in every way. That wasn't very evolved of Rosemary, 
but it did feel good. <laughs> a crowd gathered around them. At one point, Rosemary realized that the whole world was on her side. <laughs> it was the high point of her entire life. <laughs> Edmund missed the whole thing. He had wandered up to the roof suddenly in the middle of an intense spiritual crisis. He wasn't sure what had brought it on. Perhaps it was because he now had met every single person in the world and yet still felt essentially alone. Some Himalayan sheep herders stood smoking near an antenna. Edmund immediately went over and desperately bummed a cigarette from them, even though he normally didn't smoke. Despite a language barrier, soon they were all laughing, having a good time, and somehow exchanging intimacies. Edmund's existential despair was relieved, all because he had extended himself with some strangers. Edmund had an epiphany. He realized that he had the power to feel connected to anyone, but it was all up to him. He determined to make this his life's work starting tomorrow. Of course, when he woke up in the morning, he forgot all about it. He continued to have spiritual crises periodically, as he always had, which was one of the things about him that Rosemary had just learned to live with. And then it goes on. It is, all of us. And they start, people start to go home. A lot of people took the wrong coat home, not always accidentally. <laughs> then two million of these people leave, and several million other ones leave, and... The cat finally came out of the bed <laughs> from under the bed and sniffed around. She was disgusted with the kind of shape the world had left the bathroom in. <laughs> Here is the line that really, really, really is the one I wanted to tell you. Edmund and Rosemary were going to put away the leftover food. They clean up. They say the house is a mess. They clean up. Actually, they clean up and the house is a mess and they're particularly mopping the floor because in the space of the whole world being there for several hours, millions of babies got born. <laughs> millions of people died. They'd clean up the whole house. But then they said they were going to put away the leftover food, but they realized that not a single thing was left uneaten, which made sense because an enormous part of the population had been starving. And Rosemary said, I, should have, I told you we should have bought more. <laughs> and they threw out the trash and got ready for bed. And they talked about the party again as they lay in bed. They got into bed, which had never felt so good. Edmund said he was glad they'd thrown the party, and Rosemary agreed for the most part. I could have done without a couple of continents, she said, but it was fun. (laughs) The world is nice, Edmund said with a great yawn. Much better than I would have thought, Rosemary murmured. And then they went to sleep. So I read it over and over, and the first time I read it, well, he's a very good cartoonist, so the, the, the pictures are very droll. And then the more I read it, the sadder I got about all these people offending each other and nobody being happy. Here's the biggest party in the whole world to which everyone is invited, and everybody's doing their thing of creating suffering. And then the line about all the food being gone because half the world was starving. And literally, of course, half the world in our world is literally starving. 
because we haven't learned how to share the food at the party. But I thought more than uh, the actual starving of food, which is a huge problem on this planet, we are starving for comfort. We're starving for companionship. We don't know how to talk to each other without offending each other. We don't know how to not make enemies. We had to not know how to, how to not be frightened that people won't like us, that it won't be good enough. I didn't know if I wanted to read it to you because the more I read it, the more I realized this is really the first noble truth and it's somewhat heartbreaking. And I thought, I actually like the idea of sharing that metaphor especially because I wanted to end up by saying that we could actually make a really good party and invite the world and make a different kind of a party where everyone was feeling safe enough not to frighten each other. And it starts with us. That's what we're doing here. We are preparing for the party where we'll invite the world and not frighten each other. If we paid attention... We would not frighten each other. The Metta Sutta is a sutta about paying attention. It looks on first read like an instruction, almost like an instruction for a a valentine. I remember telling you the other night that in the beginning of my years of practice, when I really was not so familiar with Metta and its potential, I had a kind of cavalier almost approach to it. I'd read this and it says, love everybody no matter what. And I, th- and I, I think, uh, especially, there are no instructions. You tell me how. There are so many people that are difficult to love for me. How should I do that? This is, seems um, superficial, like the Nike ad. Just do it. Just do it on one page. And that it didn't have the instruction in it for how. I actually think much different now. I think the whole thing is one continuous instruction. If we had a lot of time, I would ask you, think for a minute. We won't do this in maybe very long, but think for a minute. Look at your copy of it. And if you had to think of... I want to tell you, by the way, that the whole thing is an instruction. Every single line is an instruction. But what do you think is the clue for why it works? Many people came to see me today and they said, I feel better. Why is this working? How is this working? Is this magic? Is this a magic kind of a mantra? What's happening? What do you think is the clue for how it works? How come we get to be able to make that wish? Were you going to guess, Kim? Go ahead. Get in gladness and in safety. Great. It's exactly the line that I wanted you to guess. That was great. Thank you very much. I think that's the line. That wishing in gladness and in safety, when we feel safe and glad, when we feel safe enough so that we're not frightened so that we're beside ourselves and we can't see clearly, when we feel safe enough so that our mind is not confused with all of the confusing energies that happen all the time, when we feel safe enough so that our mind is clear, so that we see it's an amazing world. Imagine this planet out here, greening and dying and greening and dying, going around and around the sun, 
It's amazing that it happens. It's a miracle. In the, if it were closer to the sun or further to the sun, from the sun, wouldn't be anything like this. Here we are, magically, human beings, evolved on this green planet, floating around in the middle of space, with enough stuff to give a really good party. <laughs> if we had clear minds, we would invite everyone to a party and be hospitable. Our heart would be hospitable. They would be happy and we would be happy. If we had clear minds and weren't frightened, we would remember that everyone is who they are for so many causes and conditions. They're just what they are. Everyone is doing the best they can. They couldn't be other. I am me because of everything that ever happened in the whole world, forever and ever, down to the proximal karma of my particular parents meeting each other and liking those, each other enough to produce me. But that means they had to meet each other, which meant that their parents had to come to America, which meant that the economic conditions had in Europe had to change, and the social conditions in Eastern Europe had to change, which meant that trade had to change and change economics, which happened as a result of Marco Polo's trade routes, so that Marco Polo is part of my karma, as is everything else in the whole world. And when I realized that, anything about my personality to the degree that I have any wit or any talent or any pleasantness, it's because all, all of the things that came into me had that, and so it flourishes in me now. Anything that comes out of anyone and everything that they are is the result of everything forever. Not their fault. Gets to a, it, when I realize that, then there's nothing to forgive. Look at people who are having a difficult time, causing pain or being in pain, and then the response to them has to be kindness or compassion. That's who they got to be. I'm hugely indebted to Gwen Gordon, who's a friend of this community, for the best line ever. And uh, in a conversation on a Wednesday morning years ago, uh, we were talking about the Buddha's teaching essentially being the teaching of accommodating, recognizing that life is challenging, but no matter how challenging it is, the possibility is that we could say, I am challenged, this is difficult, this is not what I wanted, but it's what I've got, so I'm fine, I'm doing it. And we said, I, I actually suggested to that group, I said, you know, we should have a secret handshake, like secret fraternities or sororities or something, and we, or like a secret motto that you say to people, and we meet people in the supermarket or the dentist's office, and we recognize them from that class, we say, hello, how are you? And the other person will say, I'm fine, and we will understand that that means, not that everything is great with them, but that everything is everything with them, like it is with everyone, and that they're managing, that they understand that that's how it is in life. Complicated for everyone and that they're doing it. So I said, that should, maybe that should be our response. How are you? I'm fine. And Gwen said, I don't say that. She said, anybody says to me, how are you, Gwen? She says, I couldn't be better because I couldn't takes a minute to think about it. I couldn't be better, ever, neither could you. Even when I'm miserable, I couldn't be better. I'm what I am because I'm what I am. 
in my grim and terrible and unpleasant moods. If I could be different, I would. Nobody wants to suffer. If I could be better, I would. I couldn't be better. Neither could anybody. That's the insight that changes animosity and contention and isolation and separateness into moving closer, feeling compassion, inviting the world to dinner. A lot of it has to do with the stories that we continually tell ourselves. When, uh, when I started this talk, I said about the frozen oranges, everything squeezed out extra. And I mentioned that what I thought got squeezed out were stories of enmity and contention and ill will. More than 20 years ago, because my son has been married for more than 20 years, when my younger son met uh, the woman that he married, we went uh, to Southern California to meet her family. And you know, it's exciting, you're going to meet the, met the woman that he'd fallen in love with, but you're going to meet her family, and that's exciting, and you hope that they like you, and you hope that you like them. And I'm standing in the kitchen with... Uh, um, Noemi Fernandez, who was the mother of Patricia Fernandez, whom Peter married. And she was cooking and making the dinner ready. And uh, she could see out the kitchen window as people came. And she'd be talking, having a conversation, and she'd say, Oh, here comes my daughter Natalia. You will love her. She's so wonderful. Her mind is so bright, and her personality is so lively. And she's always doing such interesting things. You will love Natalia. And, oh, here comes my son, Jorge. He's a poet. He's fantastic. You will love Jorge. He's wonderful. He's great. And here comes my sister-in-law, Myrna. Now, she, Myrna is a little difficult sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, Myrna had a complicated life, and a lot of bad things happened to Myrna. And she had a hard time. So, you know, she's really all right. And I realized in that moment that Peter was probably going to be a very lucky person in his choice. And it turns out, I'm happy to tell you that he was. That Noemi's ability to make a good story around everyone, that when she said, when someone came in her mind, oh, here is so-and-so, here is Kim, here is Maureen, here is so-and-so, it came with a story. And the story was designed to keep them, her mind and her relationship with that person in a good place. Here comes my sister-in-law, Myrna. She's a little bit difficult, but, you know, she had this and this and this and this, so it makes it okay. I wonder if I did. This is the same story, but it's another... Uh, it's, it's my family, but it's so sweet that I tell it to you. My grandfather, who died almost at 100, uh, he was 98 when he died, uh, had a particular turn of phrase. He'd say, um, um, my daughter Miriam uh, uh, is more high... My daughter Miriam, may she live and be well, is more high-strung than was my daughter Gladys, may she rest in peace. Uh, or, uh, not always comparatively, he would say, uh, my uh, grandson Henry, may he live and be well, is a very good cook. So it wasn't always a, 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 a comparing comment. But what it was is he didn't say people's names. 
without declining it with a little benediction. May they live and be well, <laughs> or may they rest in peace. He said about, uh, I assumed it was an Eastern European folk custom of protecting that person from any kind of evil spirits. You know, when you mention someone's name into the public space, you don't know what kind of evil spirits might be there, so you make a little benediction over them. He said about uh, his third wife, uh, whom he had left to come live with me, uh, my wife, uh, Ida, may she live and be well, got to be really grumpy when she got past 90. And it's hard for me to be with grumpiness and not be upset. And I want to live to be 100. And that's why I'm living with you. <laughs> but my, my wife, Ida, may she live and be well. I actually, I thought about that it was a figure of speech. And I think he did it because it was a figure of speech. I think he learned to speak that way and he just spoke that way. But I began to appreciate later that what it did is the same thing as Noemi's stories do. It kept people from... Uh, it kept the, the recollection of someone who was difficult from uh, arousing enmity or ill will in his heart. That there were people who were difficult in the world. My nephew, Murray Fox, he said said we should invest in a gas station business even though we both didn't know anything about gas stations or automobiles. So we lost a lot of money. My nephew Murray, may he live, he should rest in peace, did that. But, you know, he had hard times with people, but he did not make them enemies. And by saying, one of those phrases, may they live and be well, may they rest in peace, because those are the only two conditions we're ever in. <laughs> It means that I am keeping that person in from a place of being a villain in my life. He had no villains in his mind. When he got very old, he was already very old, when he got really, really old, he said to me not long before he died, he said, you know, when I die, there isn't going to be anyone who's going to have anything bad to say about me. And he felt really good about having had clean relationships with everybody. He made no enemies because he put nobody in an enemy condition. And so and nobody held him as an enemy. And he took a lot of comfort in that. It pleased him when he was old. So I think that this sutta is in three parts, and I think it's instructions for how to make sure that enmity and ill will does not arise in the mind based on wisdom that that's the end of suffering, based on the conviction that human beings have the possibility of arriving at the end of suffering, has the third noble truth, faith in it, and it has the instructions with it, in it. Somebody said... Um, what is it that we're doing here that's making me feel better? And I thought about it later, and you know, talk about it at great length. And I had thought mostly, and I think I said this the other night, that mostly we are doing these phrases of filling the mind with wholesome sweetness so that stories of enmity and ill will have nothing to grab onto. There's no place. We've squeezed them out like the orange juice. More than that, 
we are living in a very comfortable, safe culture. I think it's tremendously important that when we come here, we agree to live together in a community that's thoughtful of each other, that keeps the precepts, where we all of us have agreed, whether we know each other or not, to not harm each other in any way. In a thousand little ways during the day, I watch people as they pass each other, they hold the door, they look here, they, uh, they bow if they step in front of somebody. We're quiet, we walk softly. Uh, the signs that say, uh, on the sign, that I just noticed the sign going up the stairs to the top of my residence hall, says, walk up quietly, dear ones are sleeping below. I thought to myself, that's really lovely. I'm sleeping right under the stairs. I'm a dear one. That's a really <laughs> nice thing. I think when you live in a community that treats you like your dear, somebody told me last year that their whole heart, we had a very cold day and rain, and so there was some ice, a little bit in the frost in the morning and ice uh, around the, the, some of the walkways, and the caretakers had been up and put salt over them so people wouldn't slip. And somebody's whole heart opened over the fact that the caretakers had taken care to put salt there so that they didn't fall down. I, mean, I think when you live in a, in a culture where everyone takes care of each other, you quiet down, you realize everybody's a person just like me. I feel good getting taken care of. They feel good getting taken care of. Everybody wants the same thing. People become dear to each other. We start to cherish them as we would ourselves. Look at the beginning of this sutta. Here's the first instruction. I love it, by the way, that this begins, this is what should be done. In this complicated world where nobody knows what should be done, <laughs> about you know how are we going to fix this, how are we going to fix that, the problems facing the earth, in all areas, politics and, and ecology and, and population and everything that needs to get fixed, think to yourself, whoa, it's too far. It's wonderful for somebody to say, this is what should be done. This is it. <laughs> Reminds me of those t-shirts that say, because I'm the mommy, that's why. It's the answer to, <laughs> how do you get to, why do you get to tell me? And it says, because I'm the mommy, that's why. So this is the Buddha, that's why. And he said, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their way, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. That is a huge instruction in morality. It's a morality instruction. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Do the right thing because other people will feel better. And do the right thing because you will feel better. There's a beautiful term uh, that's part of uh, what the Buddha, what's a term that the Buddha is said to have used. It's called the bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness, of knowing. Maybe it's my, what my grandfather said, meant when he said, there isn't going to be anybody who's going to think a bad thing about me. That's like, 
you know, it's like pitching a, no hit, a, 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 a perfect game. You know, the bliss of blamelessness. Knowing that you haven't offended. Not only that you won't be troubled with guilt, but actually knowing that this world is so troubled and so much in pain. To know that you haven't added to it in any way would be so wonderful. And the bliss of blamelessness. You know, I think that we are meant to behave morally. I think we have a built-in conscience machine, most of us, who are wired right. If we're born with the right wiring, more or less, and we have the right caretaking, more or less, people take good care of us. I think what happens is that we have a conscience. It probably happens to you, maybe it happened to you, happens a lot on retreat, happens to me all the time when I'm sitting. All of a sudden I remember something I didn't do. It doesn't have to be like a grievous, terrible thing. But I'm sitting and then I remember, I forgot to call Marianne and tell her thank you. Just out of the blue. I'm just sitting, not thinking about Marianne, I'm just sitting here. It's like the Google of my heart. It's doing a search while I sit. I believe that that's true, you know? That I'm just sitting here minding my business quietly and that it's doing a search. And from time to time it says, you didn't do this, okay. You know, sometimes it says <laughs> one out of 4,673, so I hope not. <laughs> you didn't call Marianne to say thank you. Okay. Sometimes, and my friends will verify that, my friends who have done long practice over years, say, you know, the hardest part of my practice was the, the days that I sat and I had like a huge rollout, like a, a computer printout of the 10 worst things I'd done in my life and the 20 worst things that I'd done in my life. I actually was startled to find sometime not so long into my practice and don't remember whether I was doing metta, whether I was doing mindfulness. But I was sitting and I felt really good. And all of a sudden, it was like a readout of this and that and somebody's feelings that I heard 20 years previously and something else that I did that wasn't good and something else. And I had an interview with my teacher and I said, what is happening? You know, I, I'm doing this wrong and, and of course I'm not. This is doing it right. I think what we're here doing is we're making space for our heart to remind us of this or that or this or that for which we have not made amends. And sometimes there are things that we can do amends in this lifetime. Sometimes it's too late for a real life amends with people. And then we have to do amends on another level of amends. But to the degree that we make the amends, we heal that. One of the names of this practice is the purification of the heart. And I think it's true. That we find the, the, the heart itself tells us, look at this, look at that, reconsider that, think this over. Sometimes I think to myself, that's enough for today. Come back tomorrow with the rest <laughs> of the list. I think it does that when the mind is quiet. We make ourselves available. I think this whole first part is the instruction, lead a moral life. You'll feel good doing it. 
you'll feel good after it, you won't hurt people. In a very famous uh, teaching of the Buddha to his son Rahula, he said, before doing anything, you should reflect thus, is what I'm about to do for my benefit and for the benefit of all beings? And if it is, then you can do it. If it's not, obviously don't do it. In the middle of doing an action, you should reflect thus, is what I'm doing for the benefit of all beings or, and for my own benefit? If it is, continue. If it's not, stop, fix it up. After you did something, you should reflect, is what I just did, was it for the benefit of myself and all beings? And if it was, okay, good. And if it wasn't, see what amends you can make about that. It's much better, of course, to stop before you're in the middle or after. It's easier. Sometimes when I'm teaching, I'm halfway through a sentence and I realize I'm about to say something that I'm not happy about. Or I'm in the middle of saying something that isn't as kind as I'd like it to be. So it's like stopping a film, say, excuse me, stop, and make an apology and say, I wasn't saying that right. And you go back and you start again. It's nice not to have to save up and come back later. This whole beginning part is the injunction to take on morality as a serious practice for the benefit of your own heart, for the benefit of all beings, out of compassion for yourself and all beings because you'll feel better and everybody else will. The Buddhist path is divided generally into three parts, sila, samadhi, panya, morality and practice and mind practice and mind development and wisdom. If you look at the Eightfold Path that's on that prayer wheel as you come up, you'll see sila, right action, right um, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood. You'll see the mind development, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. You'll see the um, wisdom element, wise understanding, wise intention, wise aspiration. Those are the three parts of the path. Let's look at the second part. Wishing in gladness and in safety. So let's use that gladness and safety to mean when we live a moral life, it causes us to rest because we're safe. We give the, we give the gift of safety to the people around us and the gift comes back and reflects on us. We notice the people around us, remarkable in their individual peoplehood, lifts up the heart in gladness. We notice that the heart has the capability of being noble and moral. It's a source for gladness that human beings are essentially good. Wishing in gladness and safety. And then here's the, here is the instruction, do this. Wish for everyone. May you be well. May you be at ease. Every single one, omitting none. This whole piece of the sutta, first piece is paying attention to what we do. This is paying attention to what we think, the inclination of the heart as expressed in the thoughts, our intentions for people, paying attention 
to the intentions of the mind, the wishes of the mind. May you be well, may you be at ease, may you live and thrive, may you rest in peace, may you be strong, may you succeed, may your happiness increase, may your suffering be eased. Everything that we wish for people. May you be well, may you be well, may you be well for everyone. No one, through anger or ill will, should wish harm upon another. That's the clue of how this works. That anger or ill will causes us to wish harm, but if through understanding we can see clearly enough, then there is no ill will left. Things are what they are, the response is compassion. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart. As I love it that it's a mother metaphor. We respond to that, I think, universally, because we, we, I, I think it's a parent metaphor. I think it's a, I think it's a human metaphor, not a mother metaphor. But I think we normally uh, think of the instinct of mothers throughout species to care for their own. One of the uh, uh, little parts of the uh, lovely story that Mark shared about uh, the hippo who adopted the tortoise as his mother is it includes the fact that both of them are male. So I like that very much. That hippo's mother is a male tortoise. So I like that. It's not about gender. It's about the inclination of the heart to care. As wide as it can be, radiating kindness over the entire world, upwards to the sky, downwards to the depth, outwards and unbounded. That's the, that is the practice part. That's what we're doing here. We are, as a practice, saying over and over and over again so that it becomes a habit. Some people, sometimes you, you, sometimes you say, oh, that tune it got in my mind. I can't get that tune out of my mind. It's playing all the time. This is the tune that you want to have playing in your mind all the time. You can push out some other tunes and this one plays. My tune doesn't play all the time, but it's in there enough so that when my plane starts to bump, it goes. When I'm really unhappy in traffic and I'm late and tired and, uh, and I realize that I'm becoming upset, it starts by itself. It starts to play itself. It's, oh, right, thank you very much. Okay, it's enough in there so that it starts by itself. It's like a tripwire. Sylvia, you're in trouble. Okay, may I feel protected and safe. May I feel contented and pleased. May my physical body support me with strength. May my life unfold smoothly with ease. You want it to be the sound, the tune that your mind plays as the, if not all the time, tune the backup position for when challenge arises. That's why we're practicing it. We're installing it as hardware, really. Think of the last part of this. Freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness. You know, by the way, standing, walking, seated or lying down are the only ways we can ever be. Think about it. 
If this was not poetry, it would say something prosaic, like all the time. But this is poetry, so it's a standing or walking or seated or lying down. I mean, I guess you could say leaning or bowing or something. But essentially, this means in all of the ways that we are, it means all the time. One should sustain this recollection all the time. Imagine how it would be if we walked around with a heart that just emanated a mind so clear that it got it, that the world is like Rosemary and Edmund's party. Everybody offending each other, everybody nervous, everybody trying to have a good time, everybody messing it up, many people feeling lonely even though there are 8.3 billion other people there. If we were free from drowsiness, we could sustain that recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, I think those fixed views, by the way, means you are right, you are right, I am right, this one, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is not good, this is, these are the people we like, these are the people we don't like. These are people, just like me, trying to make their way, blundering their way through this life. When you think about it, it's so hard. Harder for certain There are certainly different physical hardships for people in life. Physical hardships because their bodies are challenged. Physical hardships because they live in circumstances that are difficult. But everybody's got a mind that makes hardships because it trips over this and it gets offended over that, gets upset about that, and it takes umbrage on that. It's amazing. If you could say to the mind, sit down, be quiet. Give me a day off. (laughs) It doesn't do it. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, that's a very, very important one, is not freed from all sense desires. I'd like to read that as free from imperative of desires. I mean, we're alive, we have sense desires free from the imperative that clouds the mind, is not born again into this world. I don't know about rebirths into other bodies and other lifetimes, so I don't know about it. Some people think, but I don't know. So I leave that open. But I'm going to read it for myself as not born into a world of suffering, the suffering of enmity, the suffering of ill will, suffering of isolation or contention, I am born, I am reborn into suffering every time I start with ill will or embitterment or resentment. It shouldn't be like this. It is like this. I didn't want this. You got it. All of those things. (laughs) I am reborn into suffering every time I say, about my situation rather than, okay, it's like this. And everybody else's situation is like this. Only the names are changed. You know, the circumstances are a little different, but we're all doing the same exact dance. We are all accommodating to challenge from the beginning to the end. I thought I'd tell you one more story. 
wonder if I, I... I think I can. About how the mind gets clouded with enmity and indignation. I, uh, I, I live part of the year in France, and um, I, uh, it's a, a fairly recent that my husband and I have begun to be able to live part of each year in France. So we have a little house in the south of France, and I uh, recently uh, needed to go to the antique store where I had bought an antique bed to protest the 400 euro extra charge that arrived with the mattress that arrived for that bed that was made in 1840. And I'd already called. The mattress had arrived and it had this extra charge on it and I'd phoned. So we already paid. We had a plan. said, uh, really sorry, malheureusement, uh, the uh, bed in 1840 is narrower than a regular uh, 140 centimeter bed. It's only 130 centimeters. They had to make a special mattress. And the special mattress had to be made in a certain place, 400 euros more. So I was going to protest in person, accompanied and urged on, goaded on by my husband, who was angry because we'd made a plan and we'd made an agreement and it's not fair and she said and we paid and you tell her and he doesn't speak French, so I went. <laughs> so he came along to glower and stand there. And, uh, and I, came, and I uh, explained my situation when I came and I explained in my most elegant, most polite French that... I love the bed. It was beautiful. We're very happy. The mattress is wonderful. But uh, since we had made it, we had really agreed that it was the price that we paid. This is quite shocking to us. And um, uh, we, uh, we were left uh, feeling really unhappy about it. And I said, uh, first of all, I wondered if, uh, if she wanted to somehow make good on in some way... Uh, Maybe I was looking around at some of the bedside tables that I had actually looked at when we bought the bed, and I'm thinking maybe you might like to give us a gift to soothe our distress. And I said, because really we've had such good relationships with you before, and everything else we've bought we love so much. And unfortunately, we are left now with um, some very bad feelings, I said. Mauvaise émotion. So, uh, Madame the Antiquaire, the Antiquaire, by the way, is 85 years old. She's an old woman. On the way over there, and here's my husband goading me on, he said, tell her, tell her. He said, she should take it, she should make good. I said, she's an 85-year-old small-town Antiquaire. She's not Macy's, you know, you can't do that sort of thing. <laughs> anyway, 85-year-old, I explain nicely. And I end up with my, my whole thing by saying, we are left with mauvaise émotion. And she looked really startled, and she leaned forward. And she said, oh, and you know, we're speaking French. We said, oh, madame, mauvaise émotion are very bad for you. She said, <laughs> <laughs> she said, you should let it go. It's in the past. <laughs> These things happen. <laughs> so the thing is, 
in that moment, first of all, in that moment, I'm having this conversation. I'm, first of all, I'm realizing she's right. Second of all, I'm realizing I'm not going to get the end tables. <laughs> I'm also thinking this is going to be one really good story. Because the truth is, it, I should let it go. What can I do? Not letting it go is the cause of suffering. I should, but it's hard. The whole thing, I should let it go, but the mind is indignant, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. A friend of mine said that those three words, it's not fair, have caused more pain in the history of the world than any of the three words, it's not fair, it's not fair, why me, it's not fair. It's not fair, but it happened. It's in the past, of course it's in the past, but every time you think about it, it's in the present. You know? It comes up with a bad feeling in the present. Every hurt from the past comes up now, it's in the present. And these things do happen. Everything happens. She didn't mean for this to happen. I think it was a mistake. I think she really didn't know it would happen that way. I don't like to think that she did know. I'm sure she didn't, actually. These things happen. Everything happens. This should be the worst thing that happens. This is not a terrible bad thing that happened. These things happen. Everything happens. What I realized as we left the store, which is really an important part of it, we leave the store and my husband said, what did she say? (laughs) I said she more or less said, make the best of it. And I am remembering we saw some glass tables in the furniture store across town that are very modern and plain that look wonderful next to the antique bed, and we went and got them. So that's the end of that story. But I tell you that story for, t- for a couple of reasons. But first of all, because the mauvaises émotions are very bad for you. There's a really good line, and I wanted to say that. <laughs> Also, I wanted to make the point that in anybody's mind, you can teach this for a thousand years, you can know it, and the mind says, it's not fair. It's not. You should let it go. It's hard. These things happen. Yeah, but... So you have to work at it a little bit. Everybody has trouble. From big trouble to little trouble. Everybody is worthy of uh, good wishes because everybody in the world, just like everybody else in the world, is trying to do the best they can, including Madame the Antiquaire. I went back and visited her uh, just recently when I was there on my last trip. It was a very lovely afternoon. I like, I like talking to her. She's uh, way older than I am. I like talking to really old women. <laughs> I'm always looking for really old women to talk to because... I have to learn from them. So we had a nice time together. I particularly want to say about what is it that we're doing here and how does it work, that I want you to think about the two pieces of sila and samadhi here, of wishing well and behaving impeccably. Impeccable behavior and wishing well for everybody. I'm reading a book called um, Praying for Gil Hodges. So you have to be a certain age to know who Gil Hodges was. Gil Hodges played first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers 
for at least a decade around the uh, around 1955. This is a wonderful book by Tom Oliphant, who writes for the Boston Globe, and uh, it's about the seventh game of the 1955 World Series. And I I watched the seventh game of the 1955 World Series on TV with my mother. I remember it. Um, Gil Hodges was playing first base for uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he was, in some way, the everyman of the team. He didn't steal as many bases as Jackie Robinson. He wasn't as amazing a hitter as somebody else on the team. He wasn't as, as amazing of this or that as somebody else. But he was a very steady performer, just the everyman of the whole team. Tom Oliphant is making the point that the Brooklyn Dodgers were as well-loved as they were because Brooklyn is the melting pot of the world, that unlike other teams of its time representing other cities, it had uh, Brooklyn as a borough of uh, tremendous diversity of working-class, regular people going about their business, trying to live a regular, plain life. It's lower-middle-class, middle-class people trying to get along with each other from various ethnic backgrounds. It's the most ethnically mixed of the boroughs. That might have changed actually now, but it was then. Plain people trying hard. And uh, so there was tremendous amount of community enthusiasm for that, for that game, which is um, probably why I remember it. And it's a wonderful book. So I want to leave you with uh, one particular line out of the book, and that's the line that the title comes from. On a particular, making the point about the tremendous amount of uh, interest and excitement in the whole community around the event of the Dodgers in their winning season. On a steamy, hot Sunday, the Reverend Herman Redman was celebrating Mass at a church in Brooklyn when he startled his congregation thus, he said, It's far too hot for a sermon. Keep the commandments and say a prayer for Gil Hodges. (laughs) I think that what we are doing here is keeping the commandments and saying prayers for Gil Hodges. All the Gil Hodgeses of the world. I think that's what it's about. Thank you very much. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 10, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.